when, it is, when is it all right for a believer to desire bad things to happen to God's people? Well, uh, I heard of this example of revenge that a pastor um, committed on his own congregation. So this little background, traditionally, the most tension in a church is between the preaching pastor and the music leader, which is why I was always so grateful that uh, Dr. Lovely on his first day meeting me said, I'm not the worship leader, you're the worship leader, and I thought, we're going to get along just fine. But uh, usually in churches, there's a lot of tension between what the preacher wants and what the musicians want, and... um, Eventually, this one pastor got so fed up with it that he decided to just quit. But on his way out, um, he decided to uh, have some revenge. And I know as a congregation, you're going to think this sounds appalling, but the pastors in the room might think, hmm, it's not a bad idea. Um, This is an article from Fresno, California. After repeated conflicts with his church board about the direction of Family Life Center, Pastor Dave Chandler decided to leave the church, but on his way out, he used a little-known clause in the bylaws to single-handedly hire a new worship leader, Bill McNerney, who specializes in alien folk music and tunes for chickens and other intelligent beings. McNerney was last employed as a street performer in Florida and Key West, and he has made several albums of himself playing the ukulele, and making barnyard sounds. Uh, We're in a true bind, said one board member, Jeff Garrity. We couldn't believe this when this bozo showed up to lead worship. The quirk in the bylaws gave Pastor Chandler sole authority to hire and fire the worship leader and to define the terms of the contract. And so the contract included a severance clause of $150,000 if McNerney was fired before two years, And the contract said that he had to lead worship every Sunday morning and any time the church gathered. Lawyers informed the board that the contract is legitimate and must be respected. On a recent Sunday morning, McNerney opened the service with a rendition of Amazing Grace in which he encouraged audience members to make Martian noises. Few people joined in. (laughs) He then segued into this old man, he played one, he played knick-knack on my thumb and seemed unfazed by the lack of participation from the congregation. It saps part of your soul to show up Sunday morning and see Bill in his undersized cowboy hat, strumming the ukulele, says one man. A lot of people are trying out other churches. Some want the church board just to pay the $150,000 to get rid of McNerney, but others want to make the best of the situation for two years and say it could bolster small group participation. (laughs) People don't want to come to church, but they'll go to the small group. McNerney said in its phone interview that he's happy to be at Family Life Center because it offers a built-in audience and less reliance on tips. (laughs) Street performing taught him to hold people's attention, a skill that he hopes to employ at the church along with, quote, making sure people get their proper amounts of gamma rays and also consider poultry ownership, unquote. Chandler, the pastor in between ministry assignments, lives in Alabama, and says that he thinks McNerney makes a good fit for the church and for the board members. (laughs) And I know that you're thinking, how could somebody be that cruel to their church? And the pastors are just thinking, that'll teach you. (laughs) That'll teach you. Maybe this is a great application of Psalm 68. So turn your Bibles to Psalm 68, where we can explore an 
a time when someone under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a godly man, desired revenge on people. But we'll see if they were the people of God or not. Now, as you're going to Psalm 68, this Psalm of David is notoriously difficult to outline. If you're ever reading commentaries about it, there's a lot of debates in how you should outline it. Usually psalms fall into a pretty simple outline, especially if the psalmist used the word selah in certain places, which is a word that may have meant a crescendo or a pause to consider. But here the word selah will sometimes uh, appear right in the middle of a verse. It's a very strange and difficult psalm to outline, so a lot of people sort of skip over it rather than preaching it. But To me, it seems that the unifying thought is wrapped up in all the verses, in all the sections, about our need for God's help, but especially in the area of bringing justice on our behalf so that we don't resort to revenge ourselves. So let me read for you Psalm 68. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered And those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is Yahweh. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah. The earth quaked. The heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Reign in abundance, O God. You shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings, there let snow fall on Zelman. O mountains of God, mountains of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where Yahweh will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that Yahweh God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation, Salah. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea that you may strike your feet in their blood that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last between them, virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation. Yahweh, O you 
who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them, in the lead, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the people. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the people who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord, Selah. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Kind of a strange psalm, right? I mean, there's certain parts of it that you, you don't really find in other parts of the psalms, but it is a fascinating psalm, and... Um, we're going to look at this in five parts of a patchwork psalm, is kind of what I've called it. Now, if you don't know what patchwork is, it's because you didn't grow up in my home. My mom loved patchwork. It was one of her needleworking hobbies that she did. From all of the off-cuts of all of her other needleworking hobbies, she would make things out of the leftover patches and kind of put them together. And so we had patchwork throw rugs and patchwork pillows and patchwork clothing if you were naughty. Um, and had to wear those out in public, and um, all sorts of patchwork stuff. Well, here you have a, a, and she would make these beautiful quilts, though, patchwork quilts of all the leftover material. So this is a, this is a psalm that is made up of different parts that have, David has stitched together, and the five parts will be the godly desire for justice, God's heart for the helpless, God's resume of past help, God's attack on evil, and God's triumph over evil. And so there is a theme there of God coming to rescue us and to, to prevent us from doing revenge and trying to see justice on our own where he does it um, for us. And this, this evening, we're only going to look at the first two, the godly desire for justice and God's heart for the helpless. And I've called the sermon the justice warrior. And we'll see why in a moment. So let's look at this first one, the godly desire for justice. Um, and even here, there's a bit of a, uh, two subpoints: the destruction of God's enemies and the safety of God's people. So in the first two verses, look at the, the godly desire that David has for justice as seen through the destruction of God's enemies. Verse 1, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. So when is it okay for a believer to desire bad things to happen to another person? I mean, don't you think that being a Christian means that you constantly want what's good for people and you want what's for their benefit? We're supposed to love our enemies? We're supposed to turn the other cheek when we're persecuted? And that's true, absolutely. That's what we see in the New Testament, Jesus applying the Old Testament, how we have to love our enemies even, the way he did. But... In those passages that tell Christians how to respond to even their enemies, it's always in the context of a personal relationship, not in a context of God's relationship with them. So your responsibility with people is to forgive or be willing to forgive, to seek peace, 
to turn the other cheek, to bear up under persecution, but that's not God's responsibility. In other words, it is wrong for you to desire the downfall of your rival at work, for example, or uh, for you to desire bad things to happen to the person who gossips about you, or for you to desire the guy that dinged your, your car door that he gets a flat tire on the way home. You, can, you, can't, you can't want those things. That's not a Christian response to want bad things to happen to people because of the things that they've done to you. Because you need to realize the world is not about you. And so justice is not being upset when something uh, happened to you that you don't want. The world is about God. And so in verse 1 and 2, answer this question. Who is David against? God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you, speaking of God, shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. So notice that in this psalm, David's qualm is not with his own enemies, but with God's enemies. And he's desiring justice, but it's not justice and revenge for something that's happening to him. It's for God's enemies. Now, in David's case, unlike in our case, usually, in David's case, often his enemies were also God's enemies because David was the anointed king. He was the one that God had chosen. And so to rebel against the king that God had chosen was to rebel against God, which is exactly why, by the way, David didn't rebel against Saul because Saul was God's anointed king. And even though Saul was becoming more and more evil and unhinged, frankly, quite insane at times. And he had the ability to get rid of him. David refused to touch the Lord's anointed because he needed to leave that up to God's sovereignty, which was the right and godly response. But that didn't mean that David didn't want that to happen. He just knew that it wasn't his place to make it happen. He had to Leave it up to God. And so you remember the stories with David, which we'll see as we go through the books of Samuel, where David finds um, Saul sleeping, and he could easily just kill him, and the whole thing would be over, but he refuses to do it. Or he finds Saul in a, in a cave, and Saul's vulnerable, and David refuses to do that. Or when Shimei is excoriating him and insulting him, um, and David's bodyguards say, why don't we just go and remove his head from his body, then he'll stop. And David says, no, this must be from the Lord. Leave this up to the Lord. If the Lord wants him to be quiet, the Lord will silence him. So David had this incredible um, faith in God's sovereignty and God's involvement in bringing justice, even when those enemies were God's enemies. Now, that perspective that he maintained was important, but just to be fair, you might be thinking of other Psalms. David does sometimes say things like this in Psalm 3, verse 7. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. But again, even then, when he's asking God to take care of his own personal enemies, he's not saying, I'll do that. He's saying, I trust you to do that for me. Now just remember that our situation is quite different from David's in that we are not the anointed king. So we don't really have this prerogative that anyone who's against me, anyone who cuts me off in traffic is not rebelling against Yahweh's anointed king. You know? um, so I can't take things as personally. But think of the different ways that Jesus responded to people's sin. You know, we saw even today the, the, in Luke chapter 7 this morning, we spoke about the sinful woman who came in repentance and devotion 
and was weeping on his feet. And he was very tender and very gentle with her and said that she loved much because her, she had many sins and they were forgiven. And he was rebuking the Pharisee for his um, thoughts in his heart. But at other times, Jesus would rebuke the Pharisees very publicly and very directly and he would call out people's sin. You remember the time in the temple where he makes a, a whip out of cords and overturns tables and chases people out of the temple and, and his zeal consumes him. He's described as being angry, as being righteously angry. So when is Jesus angry and when is he forgiving? You think of him on the cross where people are his physical enemies that are assaulting him, that are attacking him, people that have mocked him, the Roman soldiers, the people that had stripped him, that put the, the, the crown of thorns on him while they're busy crucifying him and, and nailing him to the cross. What does he pray? Father, forgive them. So why isn't he getting angry at them for touching the Lord's anointed? And Jesus is the perfect example of somebody who doesn't take things personally. This isn't, this isn't about what you're doing to me. The reason he got so angry in the temple is because you have made my father's house a den of thieves. They were exploiting the poor people with the money changing and they were taking advantage of them and they were you know, taking money from people who could barely afford it in their position of authority and he was upset by this that this den of thieves was set up in the temple that God had opened for everybody to come and worship him. And so that's what Jesus was angry about. God's glory and the vulnerable being exploited. But he didn't get angry when people attacked him. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, it says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That is a characteristic of how Jesus lived his life. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. This is what Psalm 68 is about. In all of its patchwork strangeness, the thing that's running through it, the little theme that's running through it there is that David is trusting that God is the one that will take care of business. He doesn't have to do it himself. And even Jesus did that. To revile means just to say something bad about you, to insult you. And when Jesus was reviled, what, what is your instinct when somebody insults you, especially in front of other people? Your instinct is to stand up for yourself, defend yourself, and insult them back. That is a sinful instinct that needs to be repented of. Jesus himself was reviled and never reviled in return. So this is David's perspective in Psalm 68, and it's the right perspective, the one that we need to have. It doesn't mean that we don't crave justice. It's just that we long for God to bring justice. Can you think of a New Testament text where Paul is telling a church to long not for revenge, not to do revenge themselves, but to long for God to do it? What chapter? Romans, I was thinking Romans 13. Romans 12 and 13. Let me read the passage I was thinking of. Romans 13, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Isn't that an interesting command? Not, don't avenge yourselves, you shouldn't want revenge. Don't avenge yourselves, leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, it's not your prerogative to bring vengeance, it's mine. To the contrary, Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. So, you, so do you see the tension there? 
you need to do the right thing on an interpersonal level, but that doesn't mean that justice won't get done. You just need to trust God to be the one to bring justice. And so this is what this prayer is. This is Psalm 68. Is, is David crying out, God, you will do this. And I'm clinging to that, that justice will come. So no, we don't have a right to punish people ourselves. So sometimes Christians get confused by this because we're so primed in the New Testament to be willing to forgive and to be merciful, which is so good. It is something you need to pursue. But sometimes I've, I've met and I've had to counsel Christians who got into a situation where they were confused as to their duty to report a crime. And so Psalm, Psalms like Psalm 68 and passages like Romans 13 help us to understand the balance there. You need to personally be willing to forgive a person even if they've committed a crime, even against you. But that doesn't mean that you can't report the crime and have the correct authorities appointed by God to step in and bring justice. In fact, that is our Christian duty. So, I'll give you an example of something that happened at our church in South Africa. Somebody had broken in and had robbed the church. And the person kept breaking in and robbing the church, no matter what we did. And one day, he, he did this when some of the men were practicing music, and they caught him. And so they subdued him. And they, they had him there, and in the providence of God, our church was directly adjacent to a police station, which had no effect on the crime rate. <laughs> it's like people just ignore the police station. Police weren't the most active human beings you've ever met. But, um, so they call the police. The police don't come because they're so busy. This is next door. And they're like, we've got this guy. We caught him robbing. We've subdued him. They're kind of just holding him there with his hand pinned behind it, waiting for the police to come. The police don't come. So you know what they do? They lift him up and they walk him over <laughs> to the police station and say, can you please arrest him? And the police are like, oh, this is fantastic. This is the kind of crime we love dealing with. We don't have to get dressed up and go outside. You just bring it to us. So anyway, so they, they arrest the guy. And then there was this talk in the church of like how wrong that was and how the church shouldn't press charges and should let him go because we're Christians. And we should turn the other cheek. You know, if somebody forces you to go a mile, go another mile. If they try to take your tunic, you, you know, give them your cloak as well. And, and so... And so we had to teach them on this topic. It's like, no, no, no. It would have been wrong for these men to say, we'll teach you a lesson you won't forget. We'll teach you what happens when you come to our church. That would have been wrong because that would have been a personal revenge. But handing them over to the police and saying, now we've done our part. We've given it to the justice that God in, has put over you in the authority. We will accept whatever they do. And of course, the police just let him go. <laughs> And that's fine. That's not because they're merciful. That's because they're incompetent. But, um, but we did our part, and there's nothing wrong with that. So if you are aware of someone committing a crime, it's not wrong for you to report that to the police that they would bring justice. Sometimes churches go completely crazy when it comes to this, and you have, uh, you know, when assault Sexual assault is reported in the church, and then the church tells people, well, you just need to forgive, and we'll just keep this buried. Absolutely not. If there is a crime committed, we will report that to the authorities and let the courts deal with that. And that's a, that's a good and godly desire. But you see the difference. I'm not going to do it myself. Because the police were so incompetent in South Africa, it was very common to hear people talk about their strategies for when they would catch burglars in their own homes. And I had a friend who 
said that he has a stash of paintballs that, because you can't own a gun in South Africa unless you're willing to break the law and um, you know, the bad guys have, all have guns. So they come break in, but instead of having guns, what he had is a stash of paintballs in the, in the freezer. And when he said he once caught this guy in his house and he and the neighbor pinned this guy down and they shot him with frozen paintballs, which is kind of funny, but really bad, and you should never do that. Um, and then they let him go, and of course the guy would never come and rob there again because that must be extremely painful. If you've ever been shot by an actual paintball that explodes on you, um, it's painful. But imagine one that doesn't explode and just bounces off you. So this poor guy was covered in, I mean, poor guy shouldn't have been breaking in. But it, and they kind of told that story like, like I should commend them. And I mean, part of me was like, yeah. But, but then the biblical part of me came out and was like, no, that's not a biblical response. That's, that's not how Christians should think. And, and it's so tempting when justice is not being done that we feel it's our responsibility to, to get involved. But think of David's life and how in his life there was so much injustice and yet he kept entrusting himself to God. And think of Jesus' life. Jesus' life was marred by injustice and he kept entrusting himself to God who judges rightly. And that's what Romans 13 is saying. Don't avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. So that's the destruction of God's enemies. Um, another way that we see here the godly desire for justice is in the safety of God's people. So there's the, the negative and the positive. You desire justice by the punishment of the wicked, but you also desire justice for the protection of the innocent. Verse 3. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with the joy. So in verse 1, you have the desire for God's enemies to be scattered and those who hate him to flee before him and that he's so powerful that just like smoke being wafted away, he'll just be able to waft away all of his enemies and that's what you want. But then the, the flip side of that is that you want the innocent people, the righteous people, to be glad and to be able to rejoice because of that um, that justice that has come that brings us jubilation. I mean, can you imagine the jubilation? Here it's described as they shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Why? Because God's enemies are being scattered. So you might think, well, surely when bad things happen to bad people, we should have a heart of pity. But David's saying, when justice is brought to a situation, and it wasn't brought by you, but it was brought by God, the response will be jubilation and joy. I mean, can you imagine what our lives would be like if God, on one particular day this month, just decided this is the day, and every criminal was removed from society? Every crooked accountant, every corrupt politician, every burglar, every drug dealer, every gangster, every violent criminal, everyone who was doing secret things that they shouldn't be doing, every abuser, everyone just, they were just removed. There might not be tons of people left, but, but those who were left would have a party. Imagine living in a world where there just, there's no bad guys, there's no one to fear, there's no one there's no predatory people out there. That's what heaven's going to be like. Not earth, but that's what the, the longing in us is for. And so he says the righteous will be glad. So at this time where God comes and scatters his enemies and wafts them away like, like smoke, melts them like wax, 
in that day, the righteous will rejoice. So the application for you is, which group do you want to be in? Do you want to be in the group that melts like wax? That he scatters, wafts away like smoke? Or do you want to be in the group that is righteous and so you rejoice in that? And people sometimes say, I, I, I know we should want Jesus to come back, but I don't know if I'm ready for Jesus to come back. It's a terrifying thought. Whenever you speak about eschatology and Christ's return, it's a terrifying thought. Friends, that's a dangerous place to be in spiritually. Why do you shouldn't go another day feeling I don't want the Lord to come back. That means you're, you consider yourself in the group of people that are his enemies. Or you can make peace with him at any time by repenting from your sin and embracing the forgiveness that comes in Jesus Christ. The whole reason he didn't revile when he was reviled, the whole reason he allowed himself to, to endure the injustices of the cross and Calvary is so that he can pay for the sin that makes you an enemy of God. And so what are you waiting for? Turn your back on your sin and embrace the Savior and he'll forgive you. And then you can, you can be the righteous, not your own righteousness, but clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So that if God announced that today is the day that judgment is going to happen and that all the wicked are going to be wiped out, you can stand confidently and say, that's not me. I'm in the group of the righteous that can rejoice, not because I'm such a good person, but because I've been forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. And so it is okay for us to want justice. Just remember, it's not okay for us to try to do that justice ourselves. And this jubilation has content. The jubilation comes from waiting for our Messiah to do that for us. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 4, it says, speaking of the Messiah, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So in this prophecy in Isaiah 42 that's talking about the coming Messiah, one of the things, it's a passage that says, you know, that he won't, um, he won't extinguish a smoldering flax. Um, it's in the same passage that it says, he won't grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice on earth. And that the whole world is waiting for his law to be established by his return. So when we are calling for God's justice, that's what we're really calling for, for Jesus Christ to come and establish his kingdom. And he won't rest until that happens. So that's the godly desire for justice. In verses 4 and 6, we see our second point tonight, God's heart for the helpless. So there's the godly man's heart for justice, but here we see God's heart for the helpless. So notice the people that David identifies here as needing God to undertake on their behalf. Verse 4, sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is Yahweh. Exult before him. And then this is how he describes God. Father of the fatherless, protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. Who are the solitary? Lonely people. <laughs> He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Salah, there's a pause there, so let's pause there for a moment. God, part of God's justice is to defend the defenseless. And that's why I titled the sermon The Justice Warrior and not the 
social justice warrior because of what that means. But I think there's a lot of confusion these days about that term. We talk about social justice and what that is. And, and what people usually mean by that in our context is um, sort of left-wing, liberal, progressive political ideals that try to downplay and undo the privilege that some have through um, generational wealth, for example, in order to try to, to balance the scales for those that are disadvantaged. And so then that becomes a whole political discussion, and Christians can sometimes get caught in between because they don't want to be siding with the, the politicians who tend to be most focused on the economic, social equality of people, which they call social justice, those same politicians and the people that are for that are often very intertwined with other things that Christians are completely against, like um, the right to abort a baby, for example. And so then Christians become, well, and, and you know, over-realized welfare, where people can just get money from the state without working for it or even if there's nothing really wrong with them. And so Christians want to distance themselves from that, but then what they end up doing is they distance themselves from the, the good aspects of social justice. And, and we get confused because the term is so badly used. So I did a little bit of research on the term and what it actually means. The term is social justice warrior. I mean, how many people have heard that term recently in social media? Yeah, social justice warrior. Well, the Oxford English Dictionary defines that as a person who expresses or promotes socially progressive views. So that's a pretty benign definition. It's almost a compliment, and indeed it was originally a compliment. Usage of the term social justice warrior can be traced all the way back to 1824 and was used quite consistently as recently as the 1990s when artists and musicians and politicians were called social justice warriors if they were people known for standing up for the rights of the vulnerable, people that were advocating for those that had been abused or those that had been exploited. And so it was a good thing, but that all changed in 2014. And I didn't know about this, but had anyone here heard of Gamergate? I'd never heard of Gamergate. You know how people put gate at the end of things since Watergate to make it a scandal? Well, in the video gaming community, there began in 2014, this big online discussion happened mostly in the States, but even worldwide, between video gamers, and they would, they would rant about these issues, and they would use the hashtag Gamergate. Hashtag Gamergate. And so this kind of took on a life of its own. And what they were saying is they were... They were responding to an influence of feminists that were trying to get the video gaming community to make video games that were more politically correct. And this turned into a big brouhaha on the internet about politically correct video games. And the gamers themselves were rebelling against this and ranting about it. And they were calling these feminists social justice warriors. So that's where the term took on a pejorative, insulting tone for the first time. Now, all of that to say, I think this is much ado about nothing. Who cares what video gamers think, okay? <laughs> Frankly. <laughs> like, why are video gamers allowed an opinion? Um, but anyway, this is what happened. What we got from the fallout of the video gaming community's scandal that the feminists were trying to have politically correct video games, and they saw this as a violation of their who knows what right to have chauvinistic games, I guess. I don't know. But what we got out of this is this new 
term. And so in 2015, a new definition of the term was added to the Oxford Dictionaries. And it now is defined as an informal, derogatory noun referring to a person who expresses or promotes socially progressive views. So it went from just a person who was for defending the defenseless, and it became a pejorative, insulting term for people that are into political correctness. And that's why I think we're so confused as to what our role is. So let's take out the phrase social justice warrior and realize that God is a justice warrior. God is for justice. Not justice as defined by our political systems or our social ideas. Justice is defined by him. So justice is bringing... Justice is when punishment comes to those that have sinned against God and his people. That's justice. And that's what God wants. But justice is also, that's the negative side that David talks about in the first couple of verses, but then in verse 3, he talks about the positive side. Justice is wanting good to come to those people that God needs to defend because they themselves are defenseless. So protection from exploitation. So we see this. Verse 5, he's called the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. In verse 6, he settles the solitary. It's this tender picture of God putting a lonely person into a community where they're no longer home, uh, lonely. Um, he leads out the prisoners to prosperity. And again, I just want to be clear on what that's talking about. The prisoners there are not talking about criminals who are getting their justice and God just opens up all the prison doors. These prisoners, in this context, I think specifically are talking about kidnapped, enslaved people. They were not taken in battle or war or sold themselves into slavery, but were kidnapped into slavery. Um, and in the New Testament, when you read about prisoners and how we need to visit prisoners and that kind of thing, it's actually usually talking about those that are in prison for their faith, persecuted believers. But here, prisoners, those that have been enslaved, those that have been captured and put to forced labor, he, he lets them free. So orphans and widows, I think in our context, the widow would include single moms, would include abandoned women who have children, um, divorced women whose husbands divorce them and leave them to raise the kids. These are vulnerable people in society, and God has a heart for these people, widows. Um, the isolated could include not only lonely single people, but refugees that come from a, another country and, and don't speak the language and are just isolated socially and, and don't, have, don't have any friends or family or any kind of network to look after them. It could include the disowned, people that have been kicked out of their families for whatever reason, and so they lose that support structure. So God has a heart to defend these people. And the Old Testament's where we go to learn about what God is like. The New Testament reiterates that for how the body of Christ is to apply it. So here's a New Testament verse for the fatherless. James 1, 27. Religion, is pure and un religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So true religion is you being holy and you doing good works. What kind of good works? looking after orphans and widows who are suffering. First Timothy 5.16 If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. 
Let the church not be burdened so that they may care for those who are truly widows. 1 Timothy 5.16 is talking about if a woman is left vulnerable, it's up to her family to look after her. If she doesn't have family to look after her, that's when the church steps in to look after her, if she's a true widow. Foreigners, um, Hebrews 13.2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. We, all, we always talk about hospitality and how it's a Christian virtue to have hospitality, but often we think of that as having your friends over for a barbecue. Sure, there's nothing wrong with that. I wouldn't call that hospitality as much as I'd call that um, fellowship and friendship. But hospitality, xenophilia, means to, to love that which is different. It's a word for strangers. So Hebrews 13, 2 says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Um, those are the, the solitary prisoners, especially kidnapped slaves and those who are in prison for persecution. Hebrews 13, 3 says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are all in the body. And that's as far as we're going to get tonight. It's an it's a exceedingly long psalm or we're going to get to more of it next week. But take this away. God desires justice. And God will bring justice. And so you want to be on his side. And thanks be to God, he has made that possible, where he can look away from your sins and not hold them against you because justice has been served on Calvary. And so place your faith in Jesus, turn your back on your sin, ask him to forgive you, and God can do that because he's already paid for that sin by punishing his perfect son. So God is a justice warrior. And for the rest of what God, to learn about what God is like, come back next week and we'll look at the next few verses. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this psalm. It is a, a challenging psalm um, and a, a complicated one, and yet the, the concepts can be so simple. We desire justice. We desire for you to bring justice. So I pray that you would help us to be a people that are merciful and loving, that we would be rich in good works, that we would not be bitter, that we would not hold people's sin against them in the same way that you didn't hold our sin against us. We're also thankful to know that we can be right with you because of what Jesus Christ did, that there's no amount of good we could ever do to pay you back for what we've done, but there's no need to because Jesus paid it all in his blood. So we thank you for this, Lord Jesus. Amen.